Good morning again. Welcome to church once again. It is good to be together with you. It is good to be able to see you. I, uh, I'm going to be looking at this uh, stream throughout because I've got a couple of questions I'm going to be asking you later, and I just realized how disconcerting it is to be staring at myself eight seconds in the past while I'm talking to you. So I'm going to turn my phone over and leave that there and say, uh, let's open in prayer. God, as we again uh, enter into this place of, of openness to your spirit, of seeking to hear your word through your word, the Bible, as we enter into a time where, where we are together communally trying to understand what it is that you are calling us to as a church, as individuals, how it is that you work in our lives, how it is that you are planning for our futures, how it is that you have orchestrated our pasts, how it is that you are somehow both in control and a God who gives us agency and the ability to be your hands and feet and the calling to do that. Help us to bring all these things together in a way that makes a difference in our lives as we explore the gospel, the kingdom, your calling for us. Uh, let this not stop as um, a message or a discussion. Rather, let this spill over into who we are, into our identities as people, into our interactions. Transform us, Jesus, as we speak about you in this way, as we listen for your words over this time. In your name, amen. So we just uh, finished a series in Hebrews, and I'm grateful that you stuck with me and Darren and Mike through that series. It was dense stuff. It was heavy theological stuff. Hebrews is, is a jam-packed book. It's a little bit inaccessible at times, and yet I hope that you found, as I did, that it was deeply true and beautiful, and edifying, and life-giving, as we took time to explore who Jesus is. Hebrews is constantly elevating Jesus as greater, right? That was our big theme through the book. Jesus is greater than the angels, and greater than the priesthood, and greater than systems or, or processes that we have, greater than our religion. Jesus is greater than Moses and Joshua. He is worthy of our trust and our praise and our worship, and Mike did a great job last week of breaking down our response to this, that we are called to love and to follow and to worship, that we can have trust in this bedrock, this anchor, that our understanding of how great and holy and awesome and in control our God is that allows us to put our faith in him through the storms. But one of the risks potentially in focusing on God uh, in, in that way as, as greater than all things, as all-powerful creator, as the one who breathed out galaxies, as the one who holds all things in his hand, who has total dominion and lordship over all, is that God can begin to feel a little bit inaccessible. How could someone so big and so powerful and so holy and so set apart and perfect and infinite possibly truly care or understand what it is that I'm going through. God can begin to feel unapproachable. And I want to take then a couple of weeks to remind ourselves to focus on the other side of the coin for a little bit. And this is the great mystery or the great wonder of Christianity that although God is great 
and holy, and above all, he is also intimately and personally connected into our lives, into our beings. And he has made us with dignity and with purpose and with intentionality. He loves us, not just in an abstract sense in the way that an artist loves a painting, but as individuals and as communities that have been given agency and dignity and creativity. God is willing and able and does get involved with our lives. And it's reflected beautifully through Scripture in many places. But in a few moments where the Bible tells a story of a God who rather than be distant or separate from us, literally puts his hands in the dirt and engages with or touches creation. He does this at the moment of human creation as he crafts humanity out of the dust. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. He does this as he buries Moses. He does this as he draws a line in the sand in the defense of an adulterous woman. He does this as he prepares mud to place on a blind man's eyes in an act of healing. He does this as he washes his disciples' feet at the Last Supper. And he, of course, himself goes into the earth in death as he provides himself as the perfect and total sacrifice for our sins. So I don't know that we're going to go through all of these, but we will touch on a few of them over the next weeks. And of course, if I missed some, which I'm sure that I did, if you have thoughts or ideas or, or passages that come to mind when you think about God interacting with dirt, with dust, putting his hands down into the world uh, in order to be with us in some way, I, pr I would like it if you could uh, let me know, and potentially that gets added to the series. This is an open thing as we kind of go through it. But each of these moments teaches us a different aspect or piece of who God is, of what his relationship is to us. And so what I thought is, as we enter summertime, this would be a nice place to sit uh, with and explore the nature of God's relationship to us through these different encounters. After some really dense sort of theological slogging through Hebrews, this is an opportunity maybe to rest a little bit with a God who isn't afraid to get involved in the dirt, in the mess, in the imperfection, and in the real moments of our lives. And I'm also going to, I'm grateful that Darren did this in his message a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to start asking some more questions. And so I want to encourage you as these questions come up, some of them are going to be a bit more personal, some of them are going to be a bit more uh, sort of general. And so process these things personally, take a couple of minutes uh, to just prayerfully consider these things, to discuss them uh, in the groups that you're watching with, you're with your families, uh, your kids, your parents, uh, your spouse, and, and to process this stuff. And then also, of course, if you like, it's always nice to be able to see some answers in the chat. And I'll encourage you, if you're listening later in the week, if, if you missed this live, but you're catching up at some point, feel free to still put your answers in the chat. We'll keep an eye on it and see. And so just because you missed the live service here doesn't mean you missed the boat on engaging with this conversation. It's one of the special things about these live stream services. But uh, we'll do questions a little bit later. What I want to do right now is just give you a bit of an intro or background for uh, the book of Genesis. And this is it, right? This is the beginning of Scripture. And it's a very intentional beginning. It's no accident that we start at the start of all things. And it's just jam-packed with incredible foundational truth about God and us and our relationship to him and the rest of creation and to each other. It's all there. Almost every major theme that follows through Scripture, almost every question that's going to get asked or answered is in some way brought up in those first two or three chapters of Genesis. 
it all kind of begins here and flows out from this place. And the early parts of Genesis are maybe, I would argue, some of the most misunderstood or misrepresented or misused pieces of Scripture in the Bible. They've become the cornerstone for scientific arguments about how the earth was formed, about the nature of physical creation, the origins of things. And I believe there is much we can learn about the science and origin of life from these texts. Uh, but it's essential to remember that whatever they teach us about those things, whatever they teach us about scientific principles, that's not the purpose of their writing. It's not why they were written. Genesis 1 and 2 are foundational writings that are focused on setting up a baseline, a basic understanding of, of the, the academic word for it is a cosmology. That's different than cosmetology. Uh, thank you for the laughs. Cosmology is, in astronomy, it's sort of the, the understanding of the nature of the universe. And theologically, we sort of expand that concept. Cosmology becomes our understanding of, of the world and the universe and the spiritual and the natural and everything in between and how these things relate to each other. And there are, of course, many other creation myths that exist. And many other creation myths existed in the time that Moses wrote these chapters of Scripture. And Genesis 1 and 2 are very intentionally set up in conversation with these other myths. They are reminding Israel what makes their God distinct from the so-called other gods of other religions. What makes their relationship with God distinct. What makes their calling and their purpose distinct from the way that other religions speak about humanity's role in the world. They're intended to help us set up this overall view of things, this cosmology. Most other religions would describe God as existing on an entirely different plane than humanity, on a different tier of existence. Gods in, in uh, contemporary religions to Moses at that time, they tended not, either not to care very much about the world, they were essentially indifferent, or at the very least, they viewed humanity as profoundly lesser, as beneath. Religions would focus on the, the, the uncleanness and the dirtiness of humans compared to God. A God would never lower themselves by touching or interacting or caring with or about something mortal. People were just pawns. They were just cogs in the machine. Many ancient religions set humans up essentially as slaves of the gods, created for labor and to provide offerings, and only useful as their ability to appease their creators. But Genesis flips this script on its head entirely. First, in the creation story, it is made clear that God is infinitely higher and more powerful than the gods of these other creation myths. Whereas uh, Babylonian or Sumerian creation stories speak of gods having to kill or to fight or to labor and work in order to accomplish creation. One vivid account speaks of the, the idea of the separating of the, the earth and sky, the waters below and the water above, as being accomplished by a great battle where a god is literally ripped in half and the corpse becomes the waters above and the waters below. There's huge effort put into these things, and God, the God of Israel, the true God, accomplishes this. Just a word. He speaks it into existence. He is infinitely more powerful. Second, rather than creation being something messy and ugly and imperfect and flawed, something not worth interacting with, something on a lower tier than the heavenly realms, when God creates, Genesis reminds us over and over again that it is good. It is well created. It is thought through. It has value and purpose and significance. Even dandelions apparently have value and purpose and significance if you work at it a bit. 
Third, many religions imagine uh, that for a god to interact with the created world, to lower itself to our level, would be a betrayal of its divine nature. But the god that we find in Genesis, our god, the one and only true god, the one who breathed out galaxies, he comes down and he takes the dust of the earth in his own hands and he gets intimately involved in his own creation, in his good creation. And Genesis 2, 7 and 8 is sort of what we're going to use as our launching pad today. It's what we're going to uh, look at. This is what it says. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So that word formed, that shows up a couple of times there. That is the word for a potter or a sculptor. It is a loving and careful creation of a work of art. And once man is created, God does something unthinkable to other major religions. This is the fourth way that Genesis subverts those other creation stories. He breathes his life into us. The breath of God is inside of us. According to Genesis, from a worldview perspective, from our understanding of how we fit into the world around us, of what our purpose is, of what our identity is, this is what we are. This is what you and I are made of. Dirt and the breath of God. This combination of created and creator, of made and maker, of natural and supernatural, brought together in this moment in humanity. And unlike the other creation myths of the time where people are created or exist simply to serve the gods, to act as slaves, as lesser beings or underlings that must always seek to appease their heavenly masters, God says, you're like me. You're made in my image. You have my breath inside of you. And so we as humanity receive agency and dignity. God puts us in the garden to work together with him and gives us dominion over creation. It's a complete reversal of the way the world around Moses and the Israelites understood their place in the world. It forms everything that comes after in Scripture. And so I want to take three ideas here and just expand on them a little bit as we look at our relationship, our understanding of God's call on our lives, our purpose in life. Three simple truths that come out of these verses. First, we are intentionally formed by God. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. Second, we have the breath of God in us and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Third, we have been placed by God. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. So first we're formed by God. As I said earlier, the Hebrew word for formed Yasar, it's the same as a word for a potter. It's, it's that idea expressed in Psalm 139, right? You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, does that mean that we're perfect? Of course not. You know this. We don't have to look any further than the prayer and praise section in our bulletins to be reminded of this, the health issues that are spoken of there. In fact, you know, you don't have to look any further than yourself. All of us are deeply aware of, of flaws and imperfections, whether that's physical or mental or emotional or spiritual. All of us have aspects of ourselves that are in pain, 
that are imperfect, that take additional effort, that don't work the way that we wish they did, that aren't how we wish that they were. Everyone wishes sometimes that they could be taller or smarter or funnier or thinner or prettier or more outgoing or could just kick that habit. All of us have times where our bodies and our minds and our wills betray us at some point or another. We wrestle like Paul does. We do things we don't want to do from a small eye to an allergic reaction to a cancer cell growing. Our bodies betray us. Our beings act in ways that hurt themselves. And yet... And yet, here, in the beginning of all things, is a simple truth that does not go away. No matter what else you experience, no matter what else is true, we have been carefully, lovingly, intentionally formed by a God who is not distant, who is not far away, who is willing to come down to the garden to dig his hands into the cool earth to get creation under his fingernails to form us. When God created the light, he spoke. When he created the waters and the earth and the stars and the plants and the animals and the fish and the birds, he spoke. When he created humanity, Adam and Eve and you and me by extension, he took up the earth in his hands and he formed. We bear his fingerprints. Amen? And in spite of and through and in our brokenness, that truth remains. God has formed us. And in our strengths and our weaknesses, we have the opportunity to glorify the one that has given us form with his own hands. God has given you physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually a unique shape, a unique set of gifts, a unique place within the larger body, a unique role to fill. Your strengths allow you to contribute in a way that shows love to God and the people around you. Your weaknesses are a reminder that we aren't made to do this alone. We need God, and we need each other. It's a beautiful thing. So I want to start by asking you this question. In what ways has God gifted you, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, with unique strengths, weaknesses, purposes, or calling? In what ways has God created you in a unique way with agency and dignity to fulfill his calling in your life? So this is something where it's going to be quite personal. I understand that. Maybe not the sort of thing you want to throw in the chat. You're welcome also to uh, speak to the other people in the room and go, hey, this is a gift that I see in you. Or speak to other people in the chat and go, you know what? This is a gifting that I see in you. This is a way that you have been made that blesses the people around you in a unique way. But take a few minutes, whether personally, whether in your groups at home, or, or whether in the chat, to just process, prayerfully process this question. It'll be up on the screen for a bit. So take your time.
after the first half of the verse, we are dust. Beautiful God-formed dust, dust that bears the distinction and character of having been formed and made by the hands of God himself, but that's not all. We're not only dust. The verse continues, we have been given the breath of God. He breathes into us the breath of life. That means that we're not simply created beings. We have something of the creator in us. We have been given God's breath in our lungs. The song says, right, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. The psalm says, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. We need breath right? More urgently than anything else, more urgently than food or water or rest, we rely on breath. It's a little bit disconcerting to think about. Someone mentioned this to me years ago. I couldn't really shake the thought. Every breath you take, you're restarting a four-minute countdown to your death. The average human can make it about four minutes without oxygen. So every breath you take, that restarts that timer. That's a bit of a terrible thought, Right? But what it also does, I hope, is it makes you deeply aware of and grateful for the breaths that you take. We have breath. Praise God. The breath of God, though, is more than just the avoidance of of death. As we have the breath of God in us, we have something of the nature of God inside of us, the character of God inside of us. We have a creative spirit. We have a call to shepherd the earth, to to rule over animals and plants. Don't hear me wrong. We are not God, but we are made in his image, in his likeness. And the implication here is that we are created for greater things. Unlike creation myths that place human Humans as a lowly slave destined to endlessly serve the gods, just tools or pawns for the divine to play with and dispose of. We have been created by a God who is love itself and who has called us to go and be Christ to those around us. We have been given a higher calling and a higher dignity. And not only, of course, is it true that the breath of God is in you, What we realize then as we ponder this truth is that so does everyone else have the breath of God in them. We are all created in God's image, living with God's breath in our lungs. We are all immortal beings that will live forever. C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory, he says this, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with and work with, marry, snub, exploit. Because God came down to the garden, put his hands in the earth, fashioned man out of dust of the ground, and breathed life into his lungs, You and everyone you meet is, next to God, the holiest thing you could possibly encounter. And so the question is this. Again, consider this on your own. Talk about it in your families. Chew on it as you go through life. For me, in my life, personally, no other question has so dramatically shaped 
the way I consider my interactions throughout the day, my friendships, my, my business relationships, my disagreements, my interactions with strangers, all of it. This is the question. How does understanding that all people have been created in the image of God and have the breath of God in them change the way that you relate to those around you? I'll give you a couple of minutes.
Thank you for your responses. I've been, I'm a little bit behind here, but I'm catching up as we go, and uh, it's good to see the comments in the chat. I trust that you're also having good conversation uh, uh, in your homes. Uh, we had a chance to chat here a little bit as well as we, uh, as we do these questions, so it's been very good. I'm going to head to the third point here. The third point is this. We have been placed. God forms us. He breathes into us. And third, he places us. He placed Adam into the garden, right? Because that is where Adam belonged. And, and at some level, God still does the same with us today. We are here in this place, in this time, for a reason. First Peter opens up uh, by speaking to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And, and that word scattered means, it means, well, scattered, but, but it carries with it a sense of uh, intentionality. These were the uh, diaspora, these were the dispersed, the intentionally placed through the land with a purpose. And I love that because in First Peter, of course, the reason these people are displaced is because of persecution. They, they didn't choose to go there because they thought it was a good idea necessarily. They were in flight because the Roman Empire was coming after them. It wasn't that God said, here's where you should go exactly. It was more that life circumstances, and in fact, negative life circumstances in their case, had brought them to a specific place. And Peter addresses them and says, yes, we're scattered, but it's also true that you're exactly where God wants you to be. There is intentionality behind this. Being placed by God for us is less a statement about that, that, that Rosenord, a low farmer, Morris, is exactly where you belong and you shouldn't go anywhere else. It's more about the fact that God will make use of the situation you find yourself in, and he will give you opportunity to be a blessing to the people around you and to give glory to God, regardless of your location. Wherever you are, as a Christian, as a formed being with the breath of God in them, that is where you belong. And if you were somewhere else, you would belong there because God goes ahead of us. And he walks beside us, and he gets into the messiness of life with us. And regardless of circumstance or situation or how well or how poorly life is going, we have a purpose and a calling in our current place in time. And so once again, I want to give you a couple of minutes uh, to discuss and to pray, and if you like, to comment. And, and I'm actually going to let this be the conclusion uh, for the sermon. And when we're done with these questions, the worship team is going to come up and lead us in another song, and I will uh, lead us in a benediction after that. But this will be the end of sort of the official sermon. This is the question that I want to ask you. What do you think God is calling you to? In this place, in this time, in this context, he has formed you intentionally. He has breathed his life into you. You are placed here and now for positive or negative reasons, for good or bad things happening in your life. This is where you are. So, in your specific place and time, what opportunities do you have to fulfill the gospel, to love God, to love others, to share Jesus? What are your opportunities? Take some time as we close. Mm -hmm.